Okay, welcome everybody to the R Experience podcast. My name is Chad Wurz, uh, Chief Executive for ASCP, alongside my tag team partner, Tom Hansel um, of Hansel Health. And today we have a very special episode. This is our Thanksgiving episode. Uh, Thanksgiving is certainly very near and dear to my heart. It's my favorite holiday. We do all the things. We have the family turkey. We do the football game. Um, this year we're traveling back to Cincinnati. Uh, and I'm, I'm pleased that our Thanksgiving guest is Nanette Robel. Um, she may not remember this, but I remember this. I've known Nanette a long time. And one of my favorite, most endearing, wonderful stories of Nanette is she, for a long time, I'm, I don't know if she still does this, but she would open her home on Thanksgiving to, to, to her children's friends and anybody that couldn't get back home from Chicago where she lives to Thanksgiving. And she would have sort of a, a, a friend's Thanksgiving for anybody that couldn't get home. And I always found that to be so lovely and enduring. So thank you, Nanette, for that. And Nanette, why don't you give the audience uh, an introduction of, of who you are professionally? Well, hi, everybody. And uh, thanks, Chad, for having me. Chad and I have known each other for many years. Uh, I am a pharmacist who has worked in the long-term care industry primarily for about 40 years. Although I did own my own pharmacy at one point, worked in several hospitals, this is really my home, long-term care. I've worked with individuals who are aging, individuals with mental illness, and most recently with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, providing them not only uh, medications to the pharmacy that I work for, but also a lot of education for the staff, as well as uh, consulting in terms of individuals' profiles, uh, that typically do not get reviewed too much by pharmacists, especially if they're living in, in group homes or in the community. So I, I have a, a busy schedule of doing that and uh, love to host webinars, love to do lunch and dinner programs and symposiums. Thanks, Nanette. Well, I mean, you're an amazing speaker, an amazing educator, but let's talk a little bit about that IDD space. I know... Um, you are a uh, consummate advocate for that space. Uh, it's changed a lot, I know, over the course of my year, my career over 20 years. Um, in fact, you're usually very good about keeping me on my toes about calling individuals in nursing homes residents, patients, or clients, uh, like we call them in the IDD space. So I, I appreciate that, and, and, it, and it really speaks to your advocacy. What can you tell us about you know, what's changed over your career in that sector of healthcare and what we might see going forward? Well, that's a really good question, Chad. And you know, you, you said you went back 20 years, I go back 40 years. So let me paint the landscape when I first entered in, into uh, this space. Many of the individuals, uh, quite honestly, did not live beyond about 22, 23, 24 years old. Uh, they were typically on just a couple of medications. Uh, maybe a multivitamin, maybe an anti-seizure medication, pretty much not too much else. May have been a couple of other medications, but they, as a 20-year-old, they were pretty healthy, uh, but may have seizure disorder as their primary disorder. So I had to learn a lot about seizures at that time. And of course, what went hand in hand were behavior issues. So those were two areas that I really concentrated on. Then we had a lot of technology that came on board and that, you know, with G-tubes, with new uh, ways of treating individuals, their medical issues, 
Now today we're looking at individuals with a diagnosis of IDD who typically are across the nation about 47 or 48 years old. Now we also add about 10 years on to their chronological age uh, to really denote what their medical age is. So now we're talking about somebody who is 57, 58, 50, you know, an older individual. The average number of medications has gone from just a couple 40 years ago now to about 14 plus on average medications. So these are individuals who have now become quite complicated. Now we've got the overlay and I will say thankfully in my career, I've learned about the geriatric population because many of them now are living to their 70, 80, and 90s. I've also learned about mental illness and many of them carry that diagnosis as well. So it, it has really played well into this field. And now we've got a challenging group of individuals that keeps me on my toes clinically every single day. So Nanette, let me ask you just the space in general, what are the, the challenges that, that this population's facing, whether that's through um, limited health care or limited access, or you know, maybe even government policy changes? What are the big things that that you're concerned about that you're focused on? So Tom, I, I will say you've touched on all of those. So the fact is that this is a is a population that is not necessarily a popular population. It's not necessarily a population that if you're a clinician that you would go into wholeheartedly and say, this is what I want to learn about. So we've got problems with finding access to clinicians who may know medically what might be going on, but can't communicate with our individuals, many of which are nonverbal. Uh, many, they you know act out in our office and they probably don't want that acting out to occur. So quite honestly, it's difficult to find a clinician who will work with with our group. Uh, we don't have the underscoring of education that happens in a you know early clinician's life to say, this is what you might find with an individual with IDD. So we learn about the disease states. We don't necessarily learn about how the individual is affected by those disease states. So that becomes a challenge as well. And, and then quite honestly, we have uh, you know a huge turnover like other in, in other areas as well, you know, in, in the geriatric population or MI population, big turnover. And most of the individuals that we care for are not in ICFs or skilled facilities. They're out in the community. And so there is not a great deal of uh, interchange between a clinician and the staff. So we've got a lot of teaching to do. We've got a lot of uh, simplistic ways of, of handling medications for instance, uh, uh, we work on technology, we work on systems that allow our direct care staff to be very comfortable with that medication process. Whereas yesterday they may have been putting ketchup on a hamburger at McDonald's, today they're helping pass medications. You know, we gotta be able to, to uh, accommodate that. So that's some of the challenges we face. So just taking, a, taking that a step further, I think one of the things having worked in a pediatric SNF and in some of the group homes is there's an abandonment sort of underlying issue here that these are individuals, they do live in group homes. Uh, many of their families have uh, either 
abandoned them and, and they're now wards of the state. Um, there was just always this, this overwhelming like lack of interest. You talked about it from a clinician standpoint, like not being attracted to work in this space, but there's also a, a, another version, another layer of that that is this abandonment piece. Like, what can you say about that in your experience? Like what, how are these individuals, you know, living? Are they living where there's a lot of family involvement, no family involvement? Have they been abandoned? What's your sense of that? Well, I think I would answer that by saying all three that you just mentioned. So these are individuals, you know, especially early on in my career, what I saw was clinicians who quite honestly, Chad, would recommend that the family give them away, put them in an institution, you know, uh, they are maybe a member of your family, but you don't need to admit that. You don't need to recognize that. You don't need to visit them. They're best locked away. That's changed somewhat. So now we have individuals coming into our facilities, but I will tell you what you mentioned about not having fam a lot of family. That is true. So I mentioned an in individual who is aging and is it brothers and sisters who may have picked up the slack sometimes? But if you think to yourself, you know, that's a cumbersome job to take on. These are individuals who need a lot of care. So they're probably are in an ICF or in a group home. And now they, you know, the other part of it is they're developing diseases, um, you know, or diagnoses like Alzheimer's disease. Even if they have parents, the individual may have Alzheimer's disease before the parent has Alzheimer's disease. And so that becomes a difficult for family members to recognize and deal with, with all the things that go on with that uh, diagnosis. So we do have a lot of guardians. Uh, the individuals really form a relationship with those they live with and those that care for them. And that becomes their family. Family members who are involved typically are involved maybe a couple of times a month on the outset. But it's not unusual to have a family member who maybe comes home at Christmas, comes home at Thanksgiving, and that's it throughout the year. It's interesting. You know, I see the baby boomer population aging out and, and passing away. The anticipation is that a lot of those um, IDD patients are living with their, their, their parents that are now senior age. Are you guys anticipating a significant spike as that continues to happen, as that population continues to, to age out and pass away? You, you um, anticipating a significant spike in, in group home uh, residents? Yeah, that's a good question, Tom. And I think I would answer it by saying, I described to you the scenario when I was a young pharmacist and the fact that we had individuals who were maybe 20 years old and less. Now you have to also think about the physical features of that person. So, Many of them were smaller, many of them are younger. So it was not difficult for the parents to care for them. But if now you have a 47 year old, 200 pound, six foot three individual with a diagnosis of IDD that has behavior issues, seizure issues, cardiac issues, Alzheimer's disease, et cetera, et cetera, that becomes really difficult for a parent to handle. So yes, because they're living longer, and because the the as a population of normal intellect people are are essentially living longer with that individual, I do see a spike. I see a real need for care for these individuals. So, Nanette, you're you're a pharmacist. Talk about you know what 
what your your role has been over the past you know couple of decades in this population and and where do you see pharmacists really having the biggest impact as this population kind of grows um, and and the need for pharmacists with the number of medications, the value that pharmacists brings increases as well. Like, where do you see all of that? So again, you know, I go back to the fact that early on, there wasn't uh, a whole lot that I did as a consultant pharmacist. Now there is a great deal of challenges. So one of the challenges is that we have um, direct care staff. We have QDDPs, Qualified Developmental Disability Professionals. We have nurses who come into this field with little or no knowledge about IDD. So they may have a knowledge about, you know, hypertension, but they don't know how to handle hypertension in an individual who is a nonverbal individual who has so many other things going on with them as well. It's not just that cardiac issue. They're not working as a nurse on a floor, a cardiac floor. Now they're working out in the community with very little other ability to talk or discuss an issue with a coworker because they may be working alone as a nurse, maybe working alone as a caregiver or a QDDP. So there's not that camaraderie picking up the phone and saying, hey, I see this individual and this is what's going on with them. What do you, what do you think we should do? They have to make their decisions on their own and they have to make decisions that are impacting that individual not only today, but through the rest of their life. So as a pharmacist, one of the things that was very impactful for me when I was a young pharmacist was recognizing that any type of clini clinical intervention that I may make, uh, I had to look at whether that was appropriate today, but also whether that might be appropriate 30 years from now. So if, for instance, we were talking about a medication like Dilantin, which was very popular when I became a consultant pharmacist early on, you know, today, uh, is Dilantin still effective? Absolutely. But has it had an impact on our individuals in terms of the potential side effects? You know, osteoporosis issues now, uh, you know, maybe some of the, the uh, behavioral issues, yes. So when I make a recommendation, I have to know that this is not for short-term, it's for long-term. Now, other medications may come along and we may switch those medications as uh, the clinician feels is appropriate, but it's quite possible also with the lack of care that we talked about a few minutes ago and the lack, lack of clinicians out there that that individual may be on that medication for many, many years. And so now that becomes a challenge also because uh, we don't necessarily know how that's going to impact that individual as they age. Uh, we don't necessarily have a lot, you know, even our geriatric population, they may not be on that medication 40 or 50 years. But in our population, it's pretty common. So uh, that becomes a challenge as well. Um, and you know that's one of the things that I see really changing. I, I also know that I, as a pharmacist, need to be able to help staff in multiple disease states. And so I really have to be on my toes when I make recommendations to them or talk to them or give a webinar that, that is appropriate to them and not just a type of webinar that I may have give, given in the geriatric space, because this is very, very different. Makes sense. So along, along that line, Nanette, where do you see, do you see, we have a lot of pharmacists that, that work in community settings, particularly big box retail settings that are not happy with their job. 
um, and they're looking for other ways that they can be pharmacists. And this is an area that is incredibly rewarding. You get to practice at more the top of your license um, as a consultant pharmacist in, in the IDD space. Do you see opportunities for pharmacists to specialize almost like you specialized um, as a consultant pharmacist? I We always had pharmacists that worked certain regional areas and some of their work might've been in the IDD space, but a lot of their work was in the uh, older adult geriatric SNF space or, or assisted living space. Do you see foresee opportunities where somebody can specialize in, you know, this is what they do. They work with uh, IDD group homes and communities as the, the majority of what they do, as opposed to just being something um, that's part of their job. So I'll answer that two ways. I think it's quite interesting that you said they're working in big box stores and maybe they're looking for something else. Uh, on a personal level, uh, within the last two months, I've had not only my COVID shot, but my flu shot, but at two different stores because they didn't have it at one of them. Each of those times, when I mentioned I was a pharmacist and they asked me what I did and I described it, they both said, they were young, and they both said, I want to get out of here. Would you give me my car your card? Would you help me find a job in consulting? Because that sounds fascinating. So I don't know whether they're going to go into IDD, but I would suspect they're going to go into consulting. Uh, and for all the reasons that you mentioned, you know, this clinician, the clinical aspect of it really keeps you on your toes. So that's great. You're not just filling a prescription and handing it out. Um, so that's great. Uh, do I see uh, the opportunity for pharmacists to special in IDD? Absolutely. So as you know, Chad, there, there's not a lot of pharmacists out there that have done that in the in the past. But I would love, I mean, we talk about, you know, maybe I'm going to retire someday. I don't know. I love what I do. So who knows whether I will. <laughs> but I want to be assured that there are pharmacists that are as passionate as I am about this population and would take it and take it to the next level. And so I look for those opportunities all the time. Can somebody specialize? This is a great area to specialize. I, I will also tell whenever I whenever I speak, I also say the same thing. What has kept me in this field for 40 years? Because every single day is different. Every single day is a challenge. I never have the same day nor the same scenario about a, a client that I am reviewing. And, and that's a really gratifying thing to be able to say. So let's take that beyond the pharmacist to the pharmacy. If I have a long-term care pharmacy somewhere in the nation and I say, man, I really want to diversify and even specialize in this population, what kind of differentiating things do I need to do to stand out as a pharmacy amongst maybe the local competition? Well, you know, there's a, there's been some changes, Tom, in the way we practice pharmacy in, in that scenario that you just described. So, uh, you know, in terms of even technology. Now, EMARs have very come very much in vogue. So to be able to supply an EMAR, to be able to integrate with that many different EMARs if you're going to be a specialty in this field. Uh, there's probably 20, 25, 30 EMARs out there. You got to be able to integrate with most of them because your particular client may choose one, the next client may choose something else. So that's really important. In terms of technology, uh, you have to make it simple. For the staff. So, uh, for instance, in the pharmacy that I work for, we have a very simplistic packaging. We, you know, we we package by date. The staff is, is trained to learn by date. We have some systems in place that allow the nurses and the director staff to take some of that load off of them 
and we take it on so that that individual uh, nurse or direct care staff can really do what they're trained to do and care for the individuals. You got to look at it from the standpoint of not what is most um, expedient for the pharmacy, but what does the staff need from me? And so that is also important. And then also, Tom, what we talked about, the, the training aspects, that's really important in this field. Uh, the interesting thing, and I know Chad knows this as well, interesting thing about this group is they don't come to a booth. They don't come to our pharma companies and take all their swag. They really, really want to learn about what medications are out there for them. The other thing that I can do is introduce them to new drugs by cooperating with our pharma partners who are very much interested in educating, which I didn't see early in my career. It was more of a sales job. Now it's really not. So all of those are things that are different that I think if you cooperate that way and look at the big picture, what does my nurse need? What does my direct care staff need? How can I make their job easier? How can I make it um, so that medication management becomes a part of the individual's day and not a major issue about, are we gonna get the medication? Are we gonna document correctly? Are we gonna give it to them correctly? How do we manage potential side effects? How, you know those kinds of things. Yeah, makes sense. Well, that I mean, this has been awesome. Um, I think really shining a light on the IDD space and, and what you've done in your career and being someone that's a that can be a mentor and an example of how to be a great pharmacist and, and find your niche and, and and find your expertise and find your passion. Um, but let's pivot and talk real quick about Thanksgiving. Like, what are your Thanksgiving plans? How do you view it? Um, what's happening uh, with your family for Thanksgiving? So Chad, uh, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Beyond being a pharmacist and doing what I'm doing, what is my favorite hobby? Cooking. So I love to cook and always have. This idea started with my daughter when she was in sixth grade. She loved to throw parties. And so she would always say, mom, would you please make me a five course dinner for all of my friends? They're gonna dress up, they're gonna to come to, to the house. Uh, it was always themed. So we started doing that. Well, Thanksgiving rolled around and my kids were in high school, my kids were in college. And the sad part, Chad, is you know some of these kids were throwaway kids for a variety of reasons. You know They got kicked out of their house so they didn't really have a great place to stay. They didn't have a terrific relationship with their families. Uh, or in college, they may be in a city where it was uh, impossible for them to get home financially, or you know it was far away, they didn't have the time to be able to do that. So we started opening up the house to anybody. I said, hey, invite them, to the, invite them over for Thanksgiving. The beautiful part about it is I have learned to now cook all sorts of different foods because people would bring things. A lot of my daughter's friends were vegan. I learned to cook vegan so that I could accommodate them. Now it still goes on. So during COVID, I made five turkeys and I and they were all different. So big green egg and in the oven, et cetera, et cetera. And all sorts of sides. And I packaged it up as if I was a restaurant and gave it to all of my friends uh, who were by themselves. There are some more elderly people that live alone. You just have to look. They, they are there or friends of friends. The friend knows somebody who's by themselves. So we still do that, Chad. It, it still is a wonderful experience. I never know who's going to show up, 
but there's always plenty of food, plenty of laughter, and we have a great time. So I'm going to continue to do it until I can't do it anymore. Nanette, I just need to know your address and what time we're eating. There you go. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I will say someday, Nanette, I'm going to show up. I, 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 you know, we have a big Thanksgiving with my family. I love Thanksgiving holiday, but I, there are times that I'm like, I wish I was stuck in Chicago on Thanksgiving so I could go to Nanette's house and, and experience this because it's, it's beautiful and it's awesome that you do that. It, it, it just warms my heart as we approach Thanksgiving. So thank you for sharing that story and thank you yes. for sharing the story of your career and, and the work you do. We appreciate it. Good thank stuff. you so much, uh, all of you. So uh, I won't see you physically, but have a wonderful holiday. Great. You too. Thanks, everybody. Thanks uh, um, for listening and watching today. And we'll see you on the next episode of our experience. Happy Thanksgiving.